Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Audrey Wells' 2003 film, Under the Tuscan Sun. I've loved this film since I was a teenager. It stars Diane Lane as a woman who goes through a devastating divorce and takes a trip to Italy where she ends up buying a house and renovating it. In the process of this home renovation, she reconnects with life and experiences emotional renewal through her connections mainly with other women. It's one of those comfort films for me, but while it is beautiful to look at and it certainly does provide escapism, it also has so much depth. For me, this film is really about a woman who survives heartbreak and creates a new life for herself, and she opens herself to love and to life. I talk all about this resplendent film, and as always, there are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash films for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash in films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can also follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode, so I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode all about Under the Tuscan Sun. Some listeners might be wondering, why are you covering Under the Tuscan Sun on this podcast when you usually do art house cinema? Well, that is why in the introduction, I say mostly art house cinema, because I don't believe in limiting yourself when it comes to anything, including art, including, you know, films and books. And yeah, do I tend to prefer my Michael Haneke and my Ingmar Bergman and my Criterion Collection and World Cinema and Ozu and all that? Yeah, yeah, that's what I tend to go to and what I tend to watch. I love Under the Tuscan Sun, but it's not the norm for me to watch films like this now. But I don't like to limit myself when it comes to choosing films or talking about them. I will talk about a film I loved in my childhood, and I don't care if it's a classic. I don't care if everybody loves it. The main thing I go by when I decide to do an episode about a film is the emotional experience how it makes me feel. And often the films that we watched when we were children or when we were teenagers, those can be really formative films. And they may not be art house. They may not be classic Hollywood. They may not be what's considered great or important, but they had an emotional effect on us and they shaped us. I'm interested in the emotional life of a film, not just the world that the film creates on the screen, But the life of that film, once it's part of us, and once we stop watching it, what happens? How does the film become part of our lives? What does it make us feel? What does it make us think? Under the Tuscan Sun, no, it's not an art house film. It's not considered some masterpiece of cinema, right? But I think it has emotional depth. I think it's very powerful and beautiful, and I just want to dig into all the things about it that I've loved since I was 14 years old when it came out. It came out in 2003 when I was 14 years old, which is really crazy to think about. When I was growing up in the early 2000s when I was in high school, that would have coincided when I was in high school from 2003 to 2007, and I saw this film. I watched it so much. This is one of those films that I watched a lot with my mom. We had certain films when I was younger that we watched a lot. Aaron Brockovich was one. 
Under the Tuscan Sun, Still Magnolias, Love Story, The Way We Were. Those were really big films for us. And these were films that were often shown on cable TV. TNT or A&E or TBS, <laughs> if some of you know those channels. Cable is like so, it, cable exists now, but it feels very obsolete or just sort of weird. A lot of people tend to, to have like internet stuff and just stream, but we still have cable. So these were films that tended to be shown on cable, which means they were changed. They were formatted, not just to fit the screen, right? Are, okay, are any of you old enough? to remember the really huge TVs in the 90s that were basically like squares and how movies would be formatted for those screens, remember? Like at the beginning of the film, they would say, this film has been formatted to fit this screen. So if it was normally like a widescreen movie, they would change it so that it fit into like the square of the TV. <laughs> I'm aging myself. I'm dating myself, but I'm 32. I'm not ashamed of it. I remember the 90s very well. I have all my 90s nostalgia. That is the place that I go to in my mind when I want to escape and I won't come so yeah, I'm all about the 90s nostalgia. I do think that Under the Tuscan Sun taps into that a little bit of my nostalgia for my teen years and my childhood. So the 90s and the early 2000s were the best years of my life, basically. And it was pretty much downhill <laughs> after I... Um, after I hit a certain point in my teens, it was just all downhill from there. This was always a film that I had only seen on cable. And you know, they when they formatted things for cable, they didn't just change the aspect ratio. They would cut scenes out. So you really weren't seeing the film the way that it originally appeared in theaters. And so it was interesting to watch Under the Tuscan Sun for this episode and to watch it from beginning to end the way that it was intended to be seen without commercial interruption, without the aspect ratio being changed, without scenes being removed. It was interesting. Like I, I sort of noticed things that I didn't remember ever seeing on the TV version or the cable version. So I guess what I'm saying is that Under the Tuscan Sun it doesn't just stand alone. For me, it's a film that is tied and bound up with a lot of other things in my life. So it's connected to my memories. It's connected to my childhood. It's connected to me and my mom watching it and enjoying it. That is one of the powerful things about film and also music, I think, is their ability to really transport you to another part of your life when you experienced those things. I do think music is probably the most powerful time machine that we have in existence. You hear one song. Like, I've been listening a lot to Belinda Carlisle, and I was listening to Heaven is a Place on Earth. I watched the Black Mirror episode, San Junipero, and really liked it. Fascinated by the ideas in it. Obviously, I'm not going to go on about it now. But in that episode heaven as a place on earth is used pretty prominently and often in that episode. So I've been going back and I've been listening to that song obsessively. And that came out in 1987. I wasn't alive then. I wasn't born until 1989. But as some of you know, in the 90s, when you were growing up with cable with MTV and VH1 late at night, Sometimes they would show music videos like from the 80s. So even though I was growing up in the 90s, I still listened to and heard 80s music, right? Like I heard all kinds of music when I was growing up. You'd hear it on the radio or you'd hear it at a department store or a restaurant or whatever. Heaven is a Place on Earth has always been one of my all-time favorite pop songs. I think it's just perfection. And it's like just serotonin. It's like a serotonin um, bomb, <laughs> going off in your head, I think. It's such a great song. And it brings back all kinds of memories when I hear it. 90s music tends to do that for me. I have a lot of like 90s playlists and stuff like that. 90s rock, 90s R&B, 90s pop, 90s singer-songwriters, all of that stuff. And I think film can be kind of similar. Like there are films where I remember when I saw them I remember the time in my life. A good example is Brokeback Mountain. I was just talking to a friend about Brokeback Mountain and I got to thinking about seeing it in the theater when it came out, like in 2005. And I was like 16 years old at that time. And 
I can remember things about my life when I saw Brokeback Mountain. So there are certain films that operate in that way. Another film that comes to mind is The Great Beauty, the Italian film. I have a very vivid memory of watching that at a particular time in my life. I just remember the day it was snowy and I watched this film and I love the music from that film. I still listen to it. Just amazing music. I haven't watched the film since then, but I have a vivid memory of what was happening in my life when I saw that film. I'm always interested in this podcast with excavating the emotional components of a film like the roots it's almost like um, these emotional roots of a film excavating them unearthing them thinking about how a film affected you at a particular time in your life the memories that are associated with that film and what it made you feel and so then when you rewatch the film particularly if it's a comfort film the way that under the tuscan sun is i think when you rewatch the film you almost are re-feeling all of those feelings and all of those emotions that come along with the film. So when I watch Still Magnolias, when I watch Terms of Endearment, that was another one me and my mom loved. When I watch Love Story, The Way We Were, Under the Tuscan Sun, Aaron Brockovich, when I watch these films, I don't just watch them in a vacuum or in isolation. They have these these tendrils, these tentacles that are connected to all these other moments in my life or times in my life, and I may have very vivid memories. And so I think that's a fascinating thing about films. I think it's very different than with books. Like when I read books or reread a book, I don't always remember the time in my life when I read the book. I mean, it might be different for other people, but for me, there's something about music and there's something about films that are very tied to memory for me and are tied to the past and to very emotional experiences that are brought up by the film or the the song. And Under the Tuscan Sun operates that way for me. This is a major comfort film. I don't have a ton of comfort films the way some people do. I don't have films that I watch constantly the way other people do. When I watch a film, I watch it and I'm pretty much done with it. Like I don't I don't watch it over and over again. Just not anymore. Now, when I was watching cable more, my mom tends to watch the cable. I I watch stuff on my laptop. And so she tends to watch films more like over and over. She has certain films that she really loves to watch that show up on cable. But in the past when I was growing up and things would come on cable, I would watch them a lot. Like The Devil Wears Prada is a really good example. That's a big comfort film for me. If The Devil Wears Prada is on, I'm probably going to watch it. If Aaron Brockovich is on, I'm probably going to watch it. If Under the Tuscan Sun is on, I will probably watch it. So there are films where throughout my life, because they were shown on cable so much, I've seen them many, many, many times. But on my own, you know, when I'm just watching films on my own, I don't have a lot of comfort films that I go back to personally. I like musicals. I like things like Singing in the Rain, and but I don't watch it constantly. You know, it's not a film I go back to every month or something like that. I really love James Ivory's film, Morris. I would call that a comfort film for me personally. I love that film so much. I really do. Um, and uh, But Under the Tuscan Sun is sort of like a comfort film. Anytime I do see it, it just makes me feel good. It makes me happy. It makes me emotional. It moves me. I guess some people would accuse it of being this fantasy, you know, sort of this fantasy of Italy. And I guess it is. But I also think that it has a lot of heart and soul and emotion and and truth and honesty about it as well. I love films about Italy. I've covered a few here on the podcast. The ones that come to mind are Summertime by David Lane, Unrelated by Joanna Hogg. Those are the two that come immediately to mind. The Enchanted April, I'm about to do an episode about that one along with this one. So I am fascinated by Italy. I I don't know why. I like Italian cinema. I'm a big fan of Italian neorealism. I love Umberto D. I love The Bicycle Thieves, Rome Open City, Journey to Italy. I love Antonioni. I have an episode about La Ventura. Yeah, I love Italian cinema. The Great Beauty. I've watched a lot of great Italian directors. 
Fellini, of course. I love Cabiria, and Cabiria is mentioned in Under the Tuscan Sun, and there are Fellini things in it, like Catherine and her being in the fountain, which brings up La Dolce Vita. I'm a huge Federico Fellini fan. My favorite is Knights of Cabiria. I love La Strada. I need to go back to Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita. I didn't emotionally connect to those in the same way as I did with Cabiria personally, so I need to go back to some of those. So I love of Italian cinema and for me Italy is sort of a fantasy. I've talked about this how France is very similar for me where I I take certain countries and I am enraptured by them and I create sort of romantic fantasies about them. France is a good example. Italy is a good example. I would love to go to England. Like I'm fascinated by places like Cornwall and the English coastline and stuff like that. The Moors. I would love to go to the Moors. I'm a huge fan of the Bronte sisters and Wuthering Heights and all that. I would love to see the Moors. Uh, So I I would love to do all of that. So there are certain countries I romanticize. I know that my image of the country is not in reality. Like I know that if you live in Italy, it doesn't mean everything is just like it is in Under the Tuscan Sun. But I just love it. Like I love the dream of Italy. (laughs) I think Under the Tuscan Sun definitely taps into that for me of this idea of like going to Italy and having this beautiful experience. I mean, Italy on film is just so beautiful. Like you have flowers, you have beautiful landscape, you have great food. um, You have a really good looking men, beautiful women. (laughs) You just have everything. There's beautiful light in it. I always feel like Italian people know how to live. They know how to like be alive. That's how I feel about the French too. They know how to live. They know how to feel. They know how to experience life in a beautiful way. They value food and all kinds of great stuff, right? Italy is like a dream for me, the way that France is. I've never been to Italy. I've never been to France. never been to these places. I only go to them through films or in my mind or something. Under the Tuscan Sun for me is a comfort film in that way too, is that it allows me to dream. It allows me to dream of another place. And we need films like that. Like is Under the Tuscan Sun more of like a a, a fantasy version of Italy? Yeah. But what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having a film that's really beautiful and taps into our dreams and our fantasies and all of that? I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't have a problem with that. Like, of course, things like Italian neorealism showed Italy in a more realistic, gritty way. And of course, but I think we need Summertime, too, by David Lean. Or we need Under the Tuscan Sun as well. And They're just beautiful films. They make you feel good. And there needs to be space for that. There needs to be space for films that are not Ingmar Bergman or not Andre Tarkovsky. But it tells the story of a woman rebuilding her life. A woman going through emotional renewal. A woman trying to heal. A woman trying to live again. And that's... We need space for that too. We need space for films with flowers and sunlight and beauty and female friendship and romance. And I I do watch the depressing films too much. I know I do. Like I like the really heavy stuff. But we need to make space in our lives for films like Under the Tuscan Sun too. Even if it's a fantasy, even if it's not real, whatever. It's an escape, it takes you somewhere, and it makes you feel. And that's why I think it's connected with people for all these years. That's why it keeps getting shown a lot. It's why women love it and people love it. Is because it transports you. And it makes you dream and it makes you feel. And it works because you connect to the people in the film. You connect to the women. You connect to Francis and Patty and Catherine. You connect to their journey, their experiences. I love the way the film centers women. I love the way it provides hope. I mean, this is really a film about hope. This is about a woman in the depths of pain and agony. And she finds a way out of it. She is in darkness, really. And Italy is her salvation. Italy is where she goes to find herself again, to reconnect with herself. And isn't that beautiful? Like, we need films like that, absolutely. 
I truly believe that, but it's it's a big comfort film for me. It's like a security blanket or an old pair of shoes. or It's been with me like half of my life at this point, this film. It's wild to even think about having seen this film for half my life, but that is the reality and that is the truth, and I just love it deeply. I love the look of it. I love the acting. I love the story, and that's why I chose it. That's why I'm digging into it. I think it matters. I really do. I think a film like this absolutely matters. Diane Lane made this film after Unfaithful. Diane Lane, for me, is the central force of the film. She is in almost every scene. She carries it. She gives a really great performance. It's heartfelt, it's soulful, and it's funny. She has so many moments of physical comedy in this film. Think of when she's running after Marcello when he drives up and she misses him and he drives by and she's running down the hill and she slides in the mud and all of that. Or think of when she's after she's been with Marcello and she later on she's by herself in her bedroom and she's jumping around saying, I got it, I got it, I've still got it. That's like physical comedy and Diane Lane is so good in it but she before she made Under the Tuscan Sun she did Unfaithful which is a film by Adrian Lyne and a film she did with Richard Gere. I love Unfaithful unabashedly. I really would love to do an episode about it and I'm not being I'm not joking about that. I love Unfaithful. It's a fascinating film to me. It's just so raw, so emotional, so I just have a lot of feelings about that film, (laughs) to be honest, and particularly about Diane Lane's performance. I think it's very interesting that she does these two films back to back because they're very different, but she gives such um, a tremendous performance in Unfaithful. I think she got an Oscar nomination for it. And then she takes that into Under the Tuscan Sun and gives another really great performance. She's a completely different character, right? These are two very different films, but she brings such a vulnerability to both of her performances in those films. And in Under the Tuscan Sun, this is like, this is not your run-of-the-mill romantic comedy. And Audrey Wells talked about this in like a featurette. In a lot of romantic comedies, the woman meets her love interest about half an hour into the film. She meets the man that she's gonna fall in love with or be with. And then the rest of the film is about the vicissitudes and the ups and the downs and that relationship. Under the Tuscan Sun is nothing like that. It's a romantic film. It's a romantic comedy, but it kind of breaks the rules, which is fascinating to me. She doesn't meet her love interest, you know, 30 minutes into the film. She meets various men from Martini, the real estate agent, to the Polish workers, to the man at that dinner who um, is married. She meets various men throughout the film, Marcello, but none of them become a serious partner or a serious love interest until the very end like the last 10 minutes when she meets that guy and they end up getting together and you can tell she's pregnant at the end and stuff like that. That's for me such a fascinating part of the film and it's a strength of the film because by doing that, Audrey Wells centers the women of the film and centers Francis's relationships with women rather than her relationships with men. And I love that. I almost feel like this film is a bit subversive in that way. Yes, there's romance. She hooks up with Marcello, has great sex with him. (laughs) It's a very passionate, erotic love scene. I love it. But at the end of the day, the core of the film is Frances. It's her. It's about her rebuilding herself, finding herself, valuing and loving herself. And then she finds the man. The man is not central in saving her. That's also what's great. She's not saved by anybody. I mean, if she's saved by anybody, it's her friendships. It's her connections with other people. The other people she meets, like Pavel, and how she becomes family to him, right? She says at the end, he does have family. I'm his family. Her connections with other people, her platonic connections with other people are what save her. That's what's fascinating. Not romantic love. That happens. And of course she wants that. And there's nothing wrong with wanting romantic love. There's nothing wrong with wanting to love and be loved, right? But that is not the cornerstone of this film. That is not the centerpiece. 
She is not saved by a man. She saves herself. That's what this film is really about. A woman saving herself and also connecting with other people and valuing her connections with her best friend, with Catherine, with the people in the village or the people she interacts with where she buys her her villa, right? So yeah, Diane Lane, like I was saying, I got sidetracked for a minute. Diane Lane's the heart of the film and her performance is soulful and, and vulnerable and funny and complex and I love it. Every time I watch it, I love it. And I love the style. I love that white dress that she wears. So this is a very different film from from Unfaithful. And she did it right after. And she said she was glad, you know, to do it after such a serious film like Unfaithful. To go into Under the Tuscan Sun and to do that. I know I sort of rambled a little bit. I'm going to talk about who the cast is and all of that. And then I really want to get into the meat of the film and talk about different things that I think it's doing. And But I just wanted to emphasize how much of a comfort film it is. But sometimes like we take a film for granted and we think, oh, it's just superficial. It's just this shallow little romantic comedy. And oh, you know, it's just a comfort film. But sometimes if you really go to those films and you analyze them in a deeper way and you go to them really pick them apart, explore them, you see that there is something deeper going on. And I've always felt that with Under the Tuscan Sun. It's a beautiful film. It's so well written. It's so well paced. It has this rhythm about it. And I do think that it's a deep film. There's there's deeper things going on. It's not just about this woman who goes to Italy and buys this house. It's about so much more than that. And it actually is subversive in some ways, I think. I think that's part of the reason that people connect to it so much. It's not just this shallow little romantic comedy. There's much deeper things happening under the surface with this film. It has a beautiful, sublime, exquisite surface. <laughs> it's just wonderful to look at, wonderful to watch. But there are, there's like a hidden depth to the film. Absolutely. I believe that. And I wanted to mention that the film is based on a book also called Under the Tuscan Sun. But as far as I can tell, Audrey Wells veered from the book. It's not exactly like the book. It's its own creation and it's separate from it in a lot of ways, I think. But I don't want to go into the book. They're two separate things. You're free to read it. I did not read the book. I've never read it. I just prefer to focus on the film and what we have in the film. There's no point in really comparing it to the book or anything like that. So we have Diane Lane as Francis. We have Sandra Oh as Patty. This was probably the first film where I saw Sandra Oh. I don't remember coming across her before this film. And she was also in the early 2000s. She was in another kind of like a sleeper hit called Sideways by Alexander Payne. And that stars Paul Giamatti as well and Virginia Madsen. And me and my mom really love Sideways. I remember us watching that when it came out. We saw it somehow. Either we saw it in the theater or we saw it on cable and that's a film we've always really liked and it always made us laugh. I think because of Paul Giamatti. And so Sandra Oh was really good in that too. I don't know what the consensus is about Sideways. It's To me, it's an enjoyable film. I don't have any issues with it, but I haven't seen it in a really, really long time. So Sandra Oh has become even more famous because of Grey's Anatomy and also Killing Eve. I've not seen either one of those shows. I've always been interested in Killing Eve, but I just haven't watched it yet. We have Lindsay Duncan as Catherine, and wow, is she amazing. She's really spectacular, and she absolutely gives a great performance as this woman who's so elegant and beautiful, and like, what I love about Catherine is like the joie de vivre. Like, this woman knows how to live. She knows how to dress, and she knows how to live. She knows what she wants. Catherine's the kind of woman that like, I want to be. And I feel like Frances wants to be her too. Maybe she's the kind of woman that most women want to be. Confident and stylish and you know your worth. You know what you want. But the film shows that there's things underneath that too. That surface, right? Maybe she doesn't have all the confidence. And she does get involved with these men and then they leave her. They disappear and... It happens to a lot of women. You get involved with men, you love men, and then they leave you. And and the film is about that heartbreak as well. We have Kate Walsh as Grace. 
Kate Walsh, another Grey's Anatomy uh, person. And we have Vincent Riata as Martini, the real estate agent. I wanted to mention him because he is a somewhat like regular part of the film and he's in some important scenes talking about the the train track and the alps that they built before they before there was a train to cross it right he has some interesting scenes with her so i just wanted to mention him it's directed by audrey wells and it was released in 2003 so i just want to go through the film, talk about certain themes that stuck out to me and that I think are really important about this film. It was interesting re-watching because I feel like I know this film inside and out. Like I've seen it so many times that every scene I watched, I knew. <laughs> I knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. Really the first thing about the film that I think is really important is the divorce. And how devastating this is to Frances. And how she really is a woman who is losing everything. Her ex-spouse wants alimony. Not only that, he wants the house that they share. He's been cheating on her. And his mistress is pregnant. This is like too much. Like no woman should have to go through this. But this happens to women. This happens every day where they are in a relationship and they think it's great and everything's wonderful and it's not. And this person who you think loves you and adores you and will be there for you is secretly betraying you. And she has to live through that. So the film, it's interesting because the film, I think the film is viewed as this light, saccharine, lighthearted type of film. It does not start off that way. It starts off really dark. And it starts off with this divorce and setting up what Frances is losing and what she's having to go through. And the film does a really good job of communicating the heartbreak that this character is experiencing. Like they don't, Audrey Wells doesn't linger on the divorce for just a few minutes. It's quite a chunk of the film at first. Her moving out of the house and she only takes a few boxes of books. She doesn't take a lot. She doesn't want anything. She's really a woman starting over from scratch. And she's in the house. I thought it was an interesting scene. She's in the house. And she could take things. She could take everything. Like all the furniture. And she doesn't want it. She walks out. She has a few boxes of books. She takes the blue vase. And that's it. And she's going to start from scratch. She has to start rebuilding from the ground up. And so something I love about the film is that the house becomes this metaphor. Just as she's renovating this house, Brahma Sole, she's also renovating herself. She's starting from the ground up. She has nothing hardly. She goes and moves into a little apartment or a little hotel room or something. And she has to figure out how to live again how to move on from this. I thought that was a very interesting aspect of this film is the rebuilding of herself and the rebuilding of her life and how the renovating the house is a larger metaphor for that. I really like the scene where she's with her divorce attorney and he's telling her all this. She didn't even know that the mistress was pregnant. And the divorce attorney tells her that one day she's going to be happy. And she's sitting there, she's crying, she's heartbroken, she's shattered. And in that moment, she can't even imagine that day and doesn't know if it's even coming when she's sitting in his office. She doesn't know if she will love again, if she will trust again, if life will ever be what it was before. She doesn't have any guarantee of that. For me, that was a scene that stuck out for me of him telling her that that you will be happy again. Because I think in life, we don't always know. Like I'm not in a happy period of my life. I'm actually in a very dark period of my life. I have days I wake up and I'm just full of this dread and this anxiety. I'm a caregiver for my mom right now whose health is not great and she's struggling a lot. I have to bear that and like live with that. That's hard. It's hard to wake up with that every day. I often feel like I'm like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill. I don't feel good about my life. I don't feel happy. I don't feel hopeful. I don't feel optimistic. On top of that, you have the pandemic. You have COVID-19 that has changed the world forever and has changed our lives forever. I don't know if people understand that 
life as we knew it before this virus is pretty much gone. And life will never be what it was before this virus. It is a world-changing event that none of us have really ever been through before. So there's that, there's the the pandemic, there's the personal issues that I live with and go through. I guess I'm like Francis on that couch with the divorce attorney. I'm not going through a divorce, but I'm in my own kind of darkness, my own kind of pain. And I don't know the end to it. I don't know if there will ever be a day when things are better. I don't know. I guess we have to believe, we have to hope that a better day will come, that things will improve for us or something. But when you're in it, when you're in the pain and it feels endless and it feels like things will never change, you just don't know. So there's something very powerful about that scene for me of her having to having to believe that there will be a better day for her. And it reminds me of later on as well when she's talking about the divorce and she says, quote, Do you know what the most surprising thing about divorce is? It doesn't actually kill you. Like a bullet to the heart or a head-on car wreck. It should. When someone you've promised to cherish until death do you part says, I never loved you, it should kill you instantly. You shouldn't have to wake up day after day after something like that, trying to understand how in the world you didn't know. Unquote. That's when she's talking to Martini. This is a very important scene where she talks about what the divorce has done, the damage of it, the heartbreak of it, how she feels like this is something that should have killed her, that she spent years and years with this man. She loved him. She gave all of herself to him. She worked and supported him while he did his thing. And he goes and he betrays her and he no longer loves her. And she's talking about the destructive power of that. What that does to your life, to your sense of self, to your very soul. I think a lot of women can relate to Francis in this film. To the heartbreak, to being abandoned, to being left, to being unloved. To having somebody stop loving you and how agonizing. That is. And she also says in that scene that she bought a house for a life she doesn't have. And that's when he tells her about the place in the Alps where they built train tracks before there was a train that could make the journey to the area. And that's a very powerful story in the film. This idea that something good could come in the future. That no, in this moment, you don't have what you want. You don't have the life that you want. But you could have that life one day. And I think a lot of us hold on to that. We hold on to the dream, to the idea, the hope that things will improve. That even though maybe we don't have the love that we need right now, or we don't have the stability that we need, or we don't have all kinds of things that we need, that our needs are not being met, that we're alone, that we're struggling, that things are dark, that we're broken, all these things. I think a lot of us hold on to the hope that one day life will be better. One day life will improve and get to a better place. And that's basically what Frances has to do is that she's bought this house. She's renovating it. She has faith in a way, like she's taking a chance When she buys that house, she's taking a leap of faith. She's taking a risk. She doesn't know what's going to happen, but she knows that she can't go back to San Francisco. When she buys Bramasole, that's what she says. And she almost cries when she says it. I thought that was a powerful scene where she's like, I can't go back. I can't go back to San Francisco. I just can't do it because there's nothing there for her. There's nothing left for her there. She knows that she needs to start over. She needs to begin again. She needs to rebuild. And that's what she's doing in this film. She's rebuilding. And it's Patty and Grace who give her that opportunity to go to Tuscany. They're going to go on the tour, but then Patty gets pregnant, remember? And they don't want her flying in her first trimester. And I thought the scene between Patty and Francis was really interesting when Patty is really encouraging her to go, because at first, Frances is resistant to it, and she doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to take that risk. She doesn't want to do that. Patty tells her that she's in danger of not recovering, 
And she says that people have these crossroads in their lives, these times when they have to decide if they're going to go left or right. And she tells Frances that this is one of those moments. And I would argue it's also the moment when you have to decide if you're going to survive, you're going to keep living, or you're going to drown. I also think that is the moment that Frances is facing and that she's living is, will she live or will she drown? Which way is she going to go? Is she going to rebuild or is she going to stay in pieces? And it's not always easy to make that decision. And yes, Francis has more resources. Not all of us can run off to Italy <laughs> and do all of this. But that's part of the, the fun of the film or the fantasy of the film. No, most of us don't get to do that. When I've been through trauma, when I've been through loss, when I've been through really terrible, painful things, I don't get to go to a resort. I don't get to go on a trip to Italy. I don't get to do any of that to rebuild my life and to heal myself. But Frances does get the opportunity to do that. And in a way, we live vicariously through her and we go on that journey with her. So that has value to us. It has value to those of us who are on a journey, maybe a healing journey or a journey to find what we're searching for or what we want in life. To watch this woman go to Italy and to renew herself, maybe we get to experience that ourselves, right? Like through her, we get to go on that journey of emotional renewal. That's what film can give us. Film can give us these vicarious experiences where we go through these things with the character and we can have revelations about our lives. We can have a catharsis. We can feel something. We can be transported out of the pain of our lives. That's what Under the Tuscan Sun gives us at times. It gives us vicarious experience, that catharsis, that fantasy, that um, that transformation. So the divorce is just crucial to the film. It's devastating to Frances. And she is a woman who is shattered by this experience and she has to find a way to live again, to love again, to open herself up as well. She made the choice by taking the trip. If she had not taken the trip, what would have happened to her? She probably she could have sunk into a depression. She could have really struggled for a long time. But she takes action. I think that's what's fascinating about the film too is she takes action. She does something. She goes to Italy. She buys this house. She takes a leap of faith. She takes a risk. And she does that throughout the film. Where she takes risks and she connects to people. And she opens herself up to people. And I think that's a, a really great thing about this film too. I forgot to mention that Audrey Wells died in 2018 from cancer. So I feel bad not mentioning that. I was really, I was really shocked to learn that. I didn't know. And she did not do a lot of films. I think Under the Tuscan Sun was so well written, so well directed. I think she absolutely should have been able to go on and make more films. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. So the film starts out with the divorce. These are the stakes, right? Like the film sets up that these are the stakes. This is a woman who is trying to survive heartbreak. She's trying to find happiness again. And we don't know if that's going to happen for her or not as we're watching. But in the end, it does happen to her. And I think that can give us hope in our own lives, I guess. When you see that on the screen, when you see this character going on her own journey and rebuilding herself and going through that emotional renewal, there's something powerful about seeing that on the screen and I think it can give us hope for sure. I think a really, really important part of this film is the way that it focuses on chosen family, like choosing your family and also an alternative family structure. That's a fascinating, important, vital part of this film, is that it absolutely goes beyond just romantic love, and it values friendship, and it values community. I absolutely love that about the film. A good example is Francis's relationship with Patty. I love how Patty 
Patty doesn't just have one scene in the film. <laughs> Patty is woven throughout the film. She's there at the beginning when she is the reason that Francis even ends up going to Tuscany. She tells Francis, you have to make a choice. You're in danger here. <laughs> like she she sounds the alarm. She sets off the sirens. You're in danger here. You might not recover from this. Because she can see that her friend is in trouble. She can see that she's struggling, that she's drowning. And in a lot of ways, the trip to Tuscany is this life raft. I love the relationship between Francis and Patty because it's one of love. That's the thing. This film, maybe at its heart, I'll say, is about love. And it's about multiple forms of love. Francis going through that divorce... It's like the death of love in a way. It's the death of that love with her husband. And that is shattering. And that is devastating to her and to her soul. But what Frances ends up doing is that she finds other forms of love to fill the void that is created when you are abandoned, when you're left, when you're broken hearted by somebody, when your heart is broken by somebody else. She finds love in different ways. And a big part of this film is her love for Patty and Patty's love for her. And I think that is a beautiful thing about friendship is the way that we pull each other up. We reach out our hands to each other. I certainly have friendships like that myself. I get really frustrated when friendship and familial love are not valued in the same way that romantic love is. I find it frustrating because if you think about it, romantic love is so volatile. It's so fleeting because a lot of romantic love is based on sexual attraction. It's based on this thing that we really don't totally understand and we don't have control of. You don't know why when you meet a certain person, it's like a lightning bolt hits you. And I've had that happen to me where you are immediately attracted to this person. You immediately desire them and you may not even be compatible with them. You may not even have anything in common, but you are attracted to them in ways that you don't understand and that change you and affect you. You may become obsessive. You may lose yourself in this person because romantic love and sexual desire, they can be incredibly intoxicating, but they're also volatile and they're fleeting. You could be attracted to someone for a little while and be really interested in them. And then the flame, <laughs> the flame that was there is gone. It's extinguished and you don't know why. And it can happen to you where somebody who was really interested in you and wanted to know you and showed interest in you and all kinds of stuff and were attracted to you, they no longer are. Nobody can really say why <laughs> that happens. Sometimes it's just sudden. There's no reason for it. But what I'm saying is that the basis of romantic love is often connected to these forces that are very fragile and very temporary. So people can be married for a few years and then all of a sudden they wake up and they don't feel anything for each other. They're not in love anymore, whatever that means. Usually it means you don't feel the lust or you don't feel the desire or the attraction anymore. And so once that attraction is gone, and it will be eventually from a lot of people, it fades or it goes away. Well, if you don't have anything else that was connecting you, if you weren't compatible, if you didn't have a lot in common, the relationship is pretty much doomed. So for me, romantic love is something that's very insecure and unstable. It's an unstable thing. You don't have a ton of control over it unless you just find somebody who's truly your soulmate and you're meant to be together and it's like you're going to be together forever. That doesn't happen for a lot of people. A lot of people have multiple relationships throughout their lives. They have attachment issues. They have issues with intimacy with another person, all kinds of things that make romantic love really complex and really complicated. We don't talk enough about it. We get really obsessed with the, the endorphins and the technicolor and the dream of this romantic love. And that's not what it is going to be 24-7. Like that's going to fade. And then you're left with the actual person instead of a fantasy. I think we make fantasies 
out of each other. We don't really see each other for who we are. We see what a person looks like or our desire for them, our attraction for them. And we create these fantasies of who they are. And we find out at some point that we don't really know who this person is. And I think that's what happens with Francis. There's nothing there between them anymore. But this was her husband and she loved him. And But romantic love is unstable. That's what I'm saying. It's not always a stable, secure connection. Whereas friendship and platonic love and familial love, I actually think that can be deeper. I think about the love my parents gave me. My relationship with my father, who is no longer alive. He died in 2006. I think about the love that he gave me. He gave me unconditional love. He was a very loving and affectionate father. I was very lucky to have a model of love in my life. The relationship my father had with my mother, it was equal. It was affectionate. It was respectful. It was healthy. It was stable. I grew up in a very stable, loving household. Thank God. And I had a model of what romantic love can look like. I was so lucky to have that. And also friendship can be so much more fulfilling and enriching and deeper and so, so strong, those bonds that you feel for a friend. And that person will be there for you through thick and thin. They will listen to you. They will support you. They will give you that unconditional love. And for some reason, we've decided that, oh, the friendship love and the familial love, those are inferior to this thing called romantic love that doesn't last often is based on what we look like and our sexual attraction to each other, which changes and fluctuates and is very volatile. And yeah, that's more important. That's the top. That's the priority. And all these other forms of love don't matter. Well, no, that doesn't work for me. And I think that all of them matter. And I think if you want to have a good life, if you want to have an enriching, fulfilling life, you need all of that love. Like, let's not limit ourselves with the love. (laughs) We need familial love, absolutely. We want to feel loved by our families. We want to have friends who love us and who are there for us. And of course, many of us, most of us, want romantic love, right? We want a love that is tied to sex and eroticism and also compatibility and all of that. So we need all of it. And for some reason, we've decided that only one is valuable. So what I love about this film and what makes it fascinating, subversive, vital, relevant, even to today, is the way that romantic love is not the center of this film. The big love for me is the love between Patty and Francis. It's that friendship. Like, that is the heart of the film for me, is the love that they have for each other. And then the love that they feel for Patty's child. So... That's the beautiful thing about it. Like she wouldn't have even gone to Italy without Patty. And then later on, Patty shows up and she's pregnant and Grace has left her. Grace has decided she doesn't want to be a mother. And so Frances immediately, I love this, immediately drops her plans with Marcello. She had already had her fling with Mr. Marcello, Mr. Limoncello. That guy is gorgeous. I remember that actor. He also did some kind of Levi's commercial, I think. He's a really, really good looking man. He's what you imagine the Italian men will look like, right? She drops her plans to be with Marcello again. And she stays there to be there for Patty, who shows up at at Brahma Sole. I love that. I absolutely love that about this film, that she drops everything for her friend and wants to be there for her friend. She could have said, oh, well, I'm going to go see Marcello. I'll be back later. But she doesn't do that. She puts her friend first and she prioritizes Patty and the love that the two of them have for each other. I absolutely love that. And then when Patty has the baby and Frances is at the window holding the baby and the light is just so gorgeous. And it's like this baby is coming into a world of love, a world where this baby will receive love from Patty and from Aunt Frances, from a whole host of people. And in a way... 
Frances is really creating her own family in Italy. She's creating this totally different family structure, too, where it's not about, for most of the film, it's her with Patty. That's a lot of the film. Or it's her and Catherine. Or it's her, um, you know, with Pavel and helping Pavel and the Italian girl that he's interested in. And those people become her family, right? Like, Catherine is, well, Catherine isn't family. She's more of a friend. But Patty's a friend and like a family. And she's really creating this whole new family with all these new people that she's met. I mean, yes, Patty is an old friend or a longtime friend. But everybody else that she meets in Tuscany kind of becomes her family. Catherine, Pavel, all these different... Martini, even. I mean, she has a lot of affection for Martini. Remember that scene where she's out and she sees him with his family? And he's so kind to her. He really is. And so I think he kind of becomes part of her family, too. I love that. I love that message. The message is you don't have to have romantic love in order to be whole. She's already whole before she meets Ed at the end. Ed is the one where she had reviewed his book and all of that. And she's at the wedding um, for Pavel and the Italian girl. She had built, she had renovated this house and she had nobody at the time. She took this risk, right, of getting this house for a life that she didn't have. And by the end of the film, she has that life. But she has that life before she even meets Ed. Ed is nice. Ed is like a dessert. He's a bonus. Ed is not the main meal. She is already a whole and complete person before she meets Ed. She has Patty. She has her house. She has Catherine. She has these people that she's met. She has this full, complete life before she even meets this man. He brings great things into her life. She falls in love with him. She gets pregnant. And then at the end of the film, I love the the imagery of that faucet and all the water is flowing out of it. I love that. I love that ending where she's standing there and the water is coming out and her hair is flowing. Diane Lane is one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. I just think this woman is gorgeous. Her hair is long. She looks like something out of a Botticelli painting to me. And the water is flowing. It's like life is flowing again. Everything that she had dreamed about, everything that she had wanted comes true and happens for her. Yeah, it doesn't usually happen like that for all of us in real life. We don't get our happy ending necessarily, but it's satisfying and it's cathartic and it's emotional to see Frances get her happy ending. That she gets her her own child, she gets a romantic love, but she also has her friends and she has her house and she has her career and she is this full, complete woman and she's healed. And I also wanted to say about romantic love, Marcello is an important part of the film. In a way, when she meets Marcello, he's like this jolt of electricity. Of It connects her to her desire. It connects her again to her sexuality. And I love how they could have made Marcello like a really big relationship where it was like, oh, we're going to be together. We're going to get married. What I love about Marcello is that it's sexy. It's a really sexy part of the film. She meets him on the street. He takes her to the beach, his little bar on the beach and Positano. <laughs> Talks about limoncello. <laughs> He's very much like a fantasy. I love it. <laughs> They're very passionate together. It's very sexy. It's very erotic. I love that they make it a fling. I love that they make it a one-time thing. He's not central, but he is important. And he just gives her that jolt. And I love that scene after she meets Marcello where she's like, I knew it. I knew it. I got it. I still got it. <laughs> and she's like touching her body and she's really connected again to her eroticism because she's been with the same man for ages. I mean, she's been with the same man for years. And here's Marcello, and he makes her feel desirable, and he makes her feel beautiful. Something about that is really powerful to me of like how sexual pleasure can renew us as well. Is that when you feel sexually desirable when you have really good sex with somebody, right? When you have like this 
physical connection with another person and you feel fulfilled by it and satisfied by it and you you have your pleasure with this man and how that can make you feel really good and that can give you confidence. Your eroticism can be a source of rejuvenation, of regeneration, connecting to your body again and to your sexuality. I love that. I love seeing sex portrayed as something life-affirming and life-giving, like this life force. It's like a vital life force, our sexuality, I think, and our desire. And instead of desire being represented as something torturous or painful, the way it can sometimes be, by making it this fling, it's like fun. It's sex as something that's fun and enjoyable and pleasurable. And we don't always see that. We don't always get to see sex, particularly for women, as something casual and fun and sort of lighthearted, right? And it really just gives her this jolt that she needs. And and it's perfect. And she doesn't need to be with him again. He served his purpose as a body, as a hot man <laughs> that she got to be with. Can I meet a Marcello? <laughs> please send me a Marcello. I need this renewal. (laughs) But it's sort of like that song, right, by uh, Marvin Gaye's sexual healing. Her sexuality is part of it. And Marcello awakens that again. He activates that sexual healing within her, activates her eroticism, and helps her reconnect to that part of herself. And that's vital and that's important. And I loved it. Like I loved seeing that. And speaking of healing, I think at the end of of the day, this film is about healing. It's about a woman who heals, who does recover from heartbreak. So at the beginning of the film, we have this woman in pieces, this woman who's shattered, heartbroken, doesn't know if she'll ever love again, feels like she's going to (laughs) die. She feels like this divorce should kill her. She's shocked that it hasn't killed her. And what we have by the end of it is this woman who has opened herself up back to life. She has reconnected with life. I think that's an important message. I think it's a hopeful message. I think it's a beautiful message. And she's not a 20-something. I also love that the women in this film are in their late 30s and in their 40s. Diane Lane was around 38 when she was doing this film. Catherine looks like she's maybe in her 40s. I don't know exactly what her age would be. I love that the film is just about more mature women, not women in their 20s or something, women who have been through life, women who have had experiences. I like that. It kind of reminds me like Brahma Sole. That's the thing. That house is like 300 years old. That house has some age on it. It's been through things. It's seen things. It's a bit worn. It's worn down. It needs some love. And that's what Frances gives it. She renovates the house and she makes the house a home because she brings life into it and she brings love into it. And she renews her own life by bringing love into it, by opening herself up to love, to connection, and to other people. Whether it's Pavel or it's Catherine or it's Patty or it's Martini, all these people. She opens herself back up to life and she undergoes a healing. Like that's, I think that might be what moves me the most at the end of the day is that she is healing and she heals through love. She heals through connection. She heals through her vulnerability and allowing herself to love again. She doesn't let that divorce destroy her. She doesn't let it harden her. She doesn't let it make her be become bitter and say, "Well, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to make friendships anymore. I'm not going to date men anymore. I'm going to just I'm going to be celibate the rest of my life and I'm just not going to do it." She takes risks. You know, she takes a risk buying that house and she takes a risk being with Marcello. She takes a risk when she opens her heart up to Ed. She keeps doing it. She keeps opening her heart. She stays tender and she stays sensitive. She stays vulnerable. She allows herself to love and to be loved by multiple people in the film. And I love that. And she is healing. Maybe by the end of it, she is healed. She is a completely new woman. She's pregnant. She's in a completely different country. 
she has a new hairstyle. She looks like Bot a Botticelli model <laughs> or a Botticelli painting or Botticelli. Am I even saying it right? <laughs> Botticelli? Yeah, don't judge me, y'all. She looks like a painting. Let's just say that. And she's this whole new woman. There's like this transformation. Think about how she looked at the beginning of the film. I noticed this as well, that the, her clothing is totally different. Like during a lot of the beginning of the film, she's in like gray, drab stuff, black, sweaters, pants, you know. It's just a darker color palette for her clothing. And then by the end of the film, you know, it's like she's in the white dress and she's she wears just like lighter clothing, even like the color. And Audrey Wells in an interview said that the light changes throughout the film, where when she first sees the house, the light is dimmer. And then by the end of the film, there's much more light and it's much more beautiful and radiant, right? So by the end of the film, she's transformed and she's healed and she's recovered. She made the choice to do all of that. And it started with buying the house. It really started with the trip to Italy, but that could have just been a one-time thing. And then she went back home because she bought the house, she gets to stay there. And staying in, in this new village and renovating this house, that's what allows her to really rebuild her life and renovate her life. I love that she heals through her friendships with other women and her love for them, particularly for Patty. That's To me, that's the love story of this film is her and Patty. They're in a lot more scenes than she is with Ed. Ed's important, of course, like all of that for sure, but I think the love that she has for Patty, that's the heart of the film in every way for me. I think that's all that I have to say about Under the Tuscan Sun. I loved this film. It was a delight to watch. I enjoyed it so much. Okay, those of you who are regular listeners, you know I cover some heavy films. Michael Haneke, Ingmar Bergman, films about death and mental illness and loneliness and suicide and all kinds of stuff. It was really nice to cover a film <laughs> that's life-affirming and beautiful and hopeful. It's a hopeful film. I loved it. I loved talking about it. I hope that you enjoyed my discussion of it. I wanted to show my lighter side. I do contain multitudes and I can talk about art house cinema, and I can also talk about Under the Tuscan Sun. And I also just want to stress how much I love Diane Lane. I love that woman. Love her. I feel like she should be in just a million films. I think she's a tremendous actress, and I love her in Unfaithful. I love her in this film. She has such a powerful quality, and I do think it's her vulnerability. I think it's something about her eyes. I don't know how she does it, but when she acts... You feel the emotion, and she brings that to the role of Frances. She gives her this emotion, this depth, this vulnerability. You feel the heartbreak in this woman. Like, you can feel it in her body. You see it in her face. You connect to it. You connect to her as a character, I think. But then she also balances it brilliantly with this physical comedy and these lighter moments. And so it's just wonderful. Really, really wonderful. I have said enough. I will stop here. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Polina, Stephen, Peter, Spunden, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jesse, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.